0: You're listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom, a weekly show about current events in the world of carbon removal, from technology and innovation to policy making and job growth. Brought to you by Nori, the Carbon Removal Marketplace. All right, welcome
1: everybody back to. Our last of the new broad topic areas in our new format, policy, so happy to have Chris back with us. It's tried and true. We know what we're doing. So as always, I have Holly Jean Butt, Assistant Professor of Environment and Sustainability at the University of Buffalo. Hello, Holly. Hello. And I have Chris Barnard, Pol- Policy Director for the American Conservation Coalition. I spit it out again this time, Chris. How are you doing?
2: it's good to be back.
1: Yeah, we're happy to have you back and your two really cute kittens that you just adopted. Adorable. And as always, I'm Radhika Moghavkar, Head of Supply and Methodology at NORI. This week, we are going to start with the whole question of geoengineering. And for those of you who may not be following the New York Times very closely or geoengineering too closely, Last week, a Harvard professor by the name of David Keith wrote an essay in the New York Times titled, What is the Least Bad Way to Cool the Planet? Keith is a founder or was a founder of Carbon Engineering, one of the carbon removal's most well-funded companies, but he's also a huge proponent on the topic of geoengineering. And he compared carbon dioxide removal and geoengineering for their abilities to rapidly bring down global temperature in a short time frame. And he writes, it is impossible to compare the techniques without more research into geoengineering and that specifically the process of adding aerosols into the atmosphere to reflect sunlight known as solar radiation management needs more research and more funding. And that geoengineering has a much more rapid time scale to bringing down the temperature in the atmosphere versus CDR. But it's not a straightforward issue, and there are reasons why geoengineering may not be as impactful or as popular as you might think at the first glance. And so Holly, I'm gonna start with you because I know you have pretty strong opinions about geoengineering. We've talked on the show after the show a few times. And so first off, maybe you could compare for us carbon dioxide removal and solar radiation management and your thoughts on which of the two are more effective in your mind and cooling the planet
0: so the first thing we need to understand is that we would not want to do solar geoengineering if we weren't going to be serious about carbon removal because then we would be stuck doing solar geoengineering indefinitely without any way out i mean so the ideal use case for solar geoengineering would be to buy time to scale up carbon removal so when people think about these two approaches, carbon removal is considered slower to act, solar geoengineering is something that could be used quickly. So I mean, the ideal use case as David Keith writes about in this op-ed is to use them both. And the kind of strange thing about this op-ed is it positions carbon removal as a kind of distraction from solar geoengineering. That, you know, we're going to get so entranced with carbon removal that we won't pursue the research on solar geoengineering, and then we'll be in a jam, you know, in a decade or two. I'm not sure I necessarily agree with that, but that's the, the point of view of this particular op-ed.
1: And so how do you feel about his argument, and maybe Chris, I'll turn this over to you a little bit, to Holly's point that somehow carbon dioxide removal is not allowing us to focus on solar geoengineering. But on the other hand, there is some evidence because there's no funding really for solar geoengineering from the government, even though the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine has recommended looking into it. So how do you think you kickstart that or should we be kickstarting that kind of effort?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I think that it does make sense to kind of have basic scientific research on that. if if anything to know if it does have any negative kind of health consequences and environmental consequences. I I don't think that, again, it's not an either or approach, I would say. There's already kind of a lot of economic and market interest in carbon removal in in a kind of traditional technological sense. Um, And so I don't think that just because you would fund research into solar geoengineering that all of a sudden that would entirely go away with the interest that we're seeing in carbon dioxide removal. So I do think they could be complementary, and as, as Holly said, one could be kind of uh, the, the, the short-term solution, and, and carbon dioxide removal could be kind of a more of a longer-term solution.
1: So for either one of you, why don't you think it's getting the same sort of funding and interest from the Biden administration that other types, like more traditional carbon dioxide removal, has gotten recently?
2: I think part of the problem is when you think about even just kind of the, the word solar geoengineering, or I guess it's two words. It just, it's, it just seems so out there. It seems like kind of like a, like Star Trek fantasy, something that we would never be able to do ourselves. Like the idea that we can kind of manipulate the temperature of the earth using technology and, and chemicals and things like that just seems so far fetched and out there that I'm sure they're, they're trying to focus more on, on things that make more uh, direct sense to people. So I guess that would be like my, my, my direct uh, answer to that, but I'm not sure that's really a good answer.
0: Kali, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, there's been an effort to cancel solar geoengineering. It's politically toxic. However, uh, I think that's really short-sighted because it has the potential to possibly help a lot of people. So, I mean, we don't know until we do the research, right? And the research program that the National Academies recommended is actually pretty modest in the scale of scientific research. So they recommended 100 to 200 million over five years. And a lot of that just goes to personnel really. (laughs) So uh, I think that would be a a really excellent first step to better understand what it can and can't do.
2: I'll I'll also quickly offer kind of maybe somewhat somewhat more of a, a cynical perspective on why it's not necessarily being pursued by politicians is because it is just basically scientific research and it is a long-term thing. And like right now, Biden's big thing is passing reconciliation and infrastructure before COP. And it's kind of, in politics, you tend to think more in the short-term, right? And and what is the, the direct climate benefit to Biden or anyone in the administration right now to pursue kind of basically research that wouldn't reduce emissions immediately, right? Whereas if they pass an infrastructure bill or pass reconciliation, they can say, we're immediately reducing emissions, we're putting money into this, we're building new roads and bridges, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a tangible wins rather than who kind of really cares about just a hundred million for scientific research.
1: Right. No, I I actually think that that's a pretty uh, reasonable analysis because we do live in an immediate sort of culture and atmosphere. But I'm also curious whether you think either that this whole idea of putting gases into the earth after what we've done with other types of, you know, greenhouse gas emissions, obviously, might also just feel very similar to nuclear. just a little bit icky, if you will. Like people just don't feel comfortable with it because it is what we're trying to prevent in a weird way. You know what I'm saying? So curious if you guys think that might be also
0: driving some of this apathy around it. Definitely, I mean, People, you know, they know that sulfur causes acid rain. We have sulfur that we're making important efforts to clean up from the troposphere where we breathe. So why would we want to intentionally introduce it into the stratosphere? I mean, that's a reasonable question. The thing is that if it's in the stratosphere, then those particles are up there for a year or so. So you don't need to introduce as much of them as we have currently, but it's basically the concept is, you know, an intentional layer of pollution up high. (laughs) Yeah. It's not very likable, but nothing about our situation. Like we don't have a perfect way out at this point. Yeah. I
1: mean, it is kind of weird, you know, when there's wildfire smoke out, it is much cooler, even though there's smoke in the, you know, and if to me, it sounds like the same thing. Like there's this thing up there preventing the sunlight and it just doesn't feel good. It feels... It feels scary, honestly, even though I know there's a lot, probably a lot of value in doing the research. My irrational mind doesn't like to think about it like that. Something else you've talked about, Holly, is social technical systems and how far we are from the social technical systems that would be necessary to deploy carbon dioxide removal and geoengineering effectively. I mean, what kind of a system, what might a system
0: look like to you? (laughs) So I was on a a TV broadcast, a Canadian show with David Keith and Mm. Marcus from XPRIZE talking about his op-ed. And so I went off on this kind of rant about socio-technical systems, which probably sounded pretty academic. But the basic concept here is that it's not about the tech. It's about this whole system that the tech is a part of. So if you can think about like Sanitation and water and sewage—that's a socio-technical system. You can think about the electric grid. So the magic thing there—it's not just like a you know inventing the light bulb. It's all the um, infrastructure and the institutions that regulate it, and the knowledge and the expertise that goes into it, and you know the people on all these different scales, right? The users that engage with it. So if you think about carbon removal not as you know here's my direct air capture machine or whatever you think about the whole system you're thinking about the infrastructure the energy the water the you know who's profiting from it (laughs) the regulation do people trust the monitoring of injection wells like the whole package right and so I think we are pretty far from you know um a mature socio-technical system around either carbon removal or solar geoengineering, which is much farther away. I mean, solar geoengineering, as I might've said, is just kind of an idea at this point. It it might sound real if we hear a lot about it in the media, but it's just like a thing in models. Yeah, it's
1: kind of ironic, right? Because you also made the point a little bit earlier. It's the thing we kind of need to do first in a way, before we as we scale up carbon dioxide removal, but really, solar geoengineering is not even is nowhere near ready to be deployed. So it's just uh, more of a twinkle in your eye than really a uh, mechanism for um, helping with the climate crisis. Chris, yeah, what's up?
2: I'll I'll just quickly add that beyond those concerns, there's also just the political aspect of it, which might prove difficult. I mean as much as climate change is in in a sense quite an abstract problem right and it, it's a it's a it's a problem that requires cooperation from the entire world this has a similar kind of international dimension simply because if you're talking about uh, pumping chemicals into the stratosphere that we all share how would that be governed like would that be kind of from the un like who would like what what, what would you agree on like would a panel of scientists do that or would it countries do that or what if a country decided that the others aren't going fast enough and they did it themselves and for some reason there were negative environmental or health impacts because of this how like would other countries react to it it's just like there's a lot of um, political questions around it that i think are are almost more difficult and thorny than the the technological problem there um, so i think that's just something to to consider as well
1: no, it's a little akin to the issue of ocean CDR as well, right? Because you have this idea of who owns the, the middle of the ocean and how do you govern that? And I think it's, there are similar problems that have yet to be addressed in any meaningful way. The, the other question I have for you, Chris, actually, is just generally speaking, you know, how, how is this being accepted within more of the conservative circles? Have you heard anything about it? Is it even on the radar in conversations you have?
2: Yeah, I mean, I've not heard a single conservative or Republican politician talk about this as a potential solution. So uh, I know, like, people on on kind of the progressive side of the aisle tend to go against um, carbon capture as like perpetuating the fossil fuel industry, and the right just likes it because it allows them to keep doing the same old, same old. But I've never heard anyone on the right really talk about this kind of thing of geoengineering, and that's probably just because it is so. Out there as I was saying earlier for most people they have no clue what it really means and what it is um, so yeah I've not heard anyone talk about it and and really the only ones like one organization called the Breakthrough Institute they're actually based mm-hmm. in California yeah. um, they're kind of like talk about eco-modernism and their whole focus is on technological solutions so they'd be the kind of people to talk about this uh, but I've not heard anything about it from the right.
0: Holly, yeah what are you thinking? Well as Chris may be too young to remember some of this, but I got into this topic because I went to a meeting in 2009 held by the American Enterprise Institute on geoengineering. And so back in the day, like Newt Gingrich was talking about it, there was some conservative interest. And then I guess that kind of just faded out. Hmm.
2: Interesting. Yeah, definitely before my time.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Chris, you just age us so much. (laughs) So I think, Holly, I think one of the other pretty strong arguments made by folks, particularly on the left is that geoengineering would have a disproportionate impact on the global south and not always in a positive manner, right? Because it's a gigantic experiment that you can't actually really do in a controlled environment. So it could have a disproportionate impact on people in greater poverty and in hotter climates. On the other hand, David Keith makes the exact opposite argument saying that, no, it is going to benefit them more because they're obviously in the hotter climates and therefore we cool more quickly and it's better for them. So I'm wondering if either of those
0: arguments resonate with you and if so, why? Yeah, this is an interesting area of research. Modeling studies find different things. I think the answer is that we don't know yet totally about what the impacts would be in the global south we do know that climate change has disproportionate impacts both on the global south and in vulnerable communities in the global north. So we're comparing something we know versus something we're not sure about yet because we haven't done the research.
1: Yeah, and, how, and the other question I think is fundamentally, how do you do the research as Chris pointed out when the stratosphere is is worldwide? I mean, you can't control it into a in a certain subset or a certain geography before it You unleashed it, it seems.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a role for more modeling. There's also a role for smaller scale process experiments that help you understand things like the chemistry of the stratosphere, where you're not necessarily looking at the whole global climate impact, but you're looking at, you know, what does the chemistry do if you put this substance at this level? And that's really hard to know without doing an open air experiment, because it's hard to simulate the stratosphere inside a laboratory.
1: Yeah. And as we all know, with our just daily weather forecasts, we know how crazy the atmosphere can be. It's just sort of an instinctive thing. So you can imagine messing up, messing around even higher, it would be even harder to figure out and model. But I'm going to turn now to our other topic for the day. Uh, Chris mentioned California, and we're going to talk about California like we have more recently because they just passed a new law, which is Senate Bill 596, that mandates the concrete industry become net zero by 2045. And we think that this is the first time that any U.S. state has required an industry to eliminate its net greenhouse gas emissions but it's a pretty important industry in terms of the amount of emissions that it produces. It's the second largest emitter of any industry in California. So obviously going net zero there would have a potentially gigantic impact. And it also produces a lot of local air pollution. So I guess, Chris, I'm curious from your perspective as a small government conservative, one, how do you feel about a state taking the lead on this? And two, What's your perspective on this sort of stick approach versus maybe subsidies or some sort of carrot approach to getting an industry to net
2: zero? Yeah, I mean, as you can imagine, I'm instinctively kind of skeptical of kind of sweeping mandates like this, just because I I generally take the approach that just because you mandate something doesn't mean that it will be achieved um, or that it will be achieved efficiently or effectively. And so, I mean, it is kind of considered one of those hard, hard to abate emissions industries. And and so I do think that general government um, involvement, be it stick or carrots, it kind of makes sense. I guess I'm a little worried about kind of how this would work in practice, because obviously, this would push up costs for the cement and concrete industry in California. And so what, what would stop them from just importing cement or concrete from other states or around the world? And so would you need a kind of cement border adjustment um, fee or something like that and, and how would that work and how, how, how much would it impact prices for average people in California uh, and whatnot so I mean I, I understand the sentiment behind wanting to reduce emissions there because as you said it is a kind of a huge contributor to CO2 emissions but I, I'm I guess I'm skeptical of how it would work in practice and, and how it would impact just kind of everyday families in, in California.
1: Yeah, so just sticking on this a little bit, what if one other, you know, one other argument or policy that's been put forth is to use the government's procurement might to sort of drive down carbon emissions by in in things like built materials by sort of mandating that they purchase materials, green materials, if you will. Do you think that's a better strategy, Chris, than something like this?
2: I mean, I think that's a lot more justifiable just because I think the government should Put it's money where its mouth is um and i i think that in california for example 40 percent of concrete is directly purchased by the government for roads and bridges and things like that and that's that's pretty huge and so i think the government could provide an incentive to the market by saying hey compete for the the most um efficient kind of lower emission concrete and cement um and we'll kind of award a contract to the best project there, I think would probably be a better approach and and actually provide a huge boost to the market broadly.
1: And Holly, you know, touching on another point that Chris made that I think is pretty valid is it it does potentially increase the cost of building. It likely will because these are novel technologies that aren't fully developed. Um, And what do you think of that potential impact on again, the most vulnerable in California, which already has a huge affordable housing crisis. And then you add the cost of cement going up and you know, how do
0: you balance all that? That's a great question. And I would like to see more engagement around that. I also think that people might not adopt low carbon cement as quickly as we would like because just because of standards need to be changed. People wanna use products they're familiar with in like things like bridges, right? Mm -hmm. And I also think that, you know, California needs to get moving with carbon capture and storage if they want this to work. So there are a lot of pieces that need to join in this effort. I think it's interesting though. I think that, you know, targeting specific sectors is interesting and necessary and it might spur innovation. Yeah, we'll
1: do you, do you can you envision a future where cities are like a carbon sink or at least at the very least like net zero in the next I mean we're talking about in the next 25 years but basically is what California is trying to do.
0: Well, I just think that I mean cement is like one of the largest industries producing emissions but you can only productively use so much CO2 compared to the vast volumes we're spewing up there. So I think there's a lot that can be done with things like cement or wood, you know, and we should be doing that biochar in cities, et cetera. But the volumes that need to be dealt with are way beyond what cities can manage.
1: And um, so Chris, any other Any other policies that you would recommend or want to see um, incentive to incentivize the deployment and kind of at what level of government do you think is the right place to put such incentives if the state is maybe too high or the federal government is too high of a level?
2: I mean, I'll I'll start by kind of mentioning some of the uh, kind of regulatory hurdles that exist around this. So I I was reading into how there's actually a lot of Prescriptive kind of cement content requirements that exist, and this is super niche, but basically there's like a, an authority out there somewhere saying what exactly has to go into cement and how that works. Mm-hmm. And, and the problem with these kind of centralized bureaucratic systems is that they tend to be slow to react to new innovations. Um, and so, they're, I think moving towards a more performance-based content strategy would be a lot better, where it has to reach a certain like level of performance and safety to be kind of allowed for public use, but for the rest, companies can innovate with the best, most efficient, and most environmentally friendly ways of creating cement. Um, So I think that's like one very basic regulatory tweak that we should make. Beyond that, I think generally kind of investment in R&D in ways that we could kind of scale this, especially carbon capture and storage in cement, like investing in R&D would probably be a good idea there. Um, And then there's also just some like general regulatory stuff around um, carbon capture and storage that would need to be addressed. For example, CO2 is still classified as a waste, whereas in this case it would be uh, a net benefit. And so if you, you there's all kinds of different uh, permitting requirements and whatnot that would have to be addressed around that, uh, which I think would be need to be overcome in order to make this as economically attractive as possible.
1: Yeah, um, I have. To, I totally agree with everything you said, and having in a past life kind of interacted with standards bodies, which is, I think, what you're kind of alluding to in terms of that centralized bureaucracy, they do exist for a good reason in many ways, because you want to standardize things to make sure they're safe, right? And I think that's what Holly was also alluding to in terms of being building bridges and skyscrapers and all these things that have an element of engineering risk with a new type of cement would seem to you know that's a harder risk benefit analysis than maybe other types of carbon dioxide removal would have but on the other hand we got it we've we've got to start implementing them somewhere so i'm i tend to be a proponent of having the government like you said change their permitting requirements and also do some of these incentives around their procurement because you know the gov- the federal government and the state and local governments purchase a lot of cement and they could really drive a lot of change that way, I think, in maybe in a safer manner than starting in bridges, but starting in like sidewalks or something like that, you know, which won't cause a lot of death if they crack, but can be a good testing ground for a lot of these things. The irony is that during the same session, California failed to pass a law that would have codified strong emission targets across the whole economy. But they told the carbon industry concrete industry to decarbonize. So I'd love both of your opinions on like why that happened and why they chose a single industry versus like a more broad emission-based target. Um, I guess I'll start with you, Holly, since I let Chris go first the last time, I think.
0: I mean, one one thing about picking a specific industry and one that may not have too many players compared to some other industries, it's just easier to work with a a smaller number of people. That's it.
1: (laughs) It could get compromised with like fewer people uh, and maybe
0: fewer politicians are as interested, huh? They don't have as many, yeah. But also you just get more rewards for your effort, I think, because this really is a majorly polluting industry. So I, I would have started with industrial decarbonization too. Chris, what about you? What do you think?
2: I mean beyond like what Holly said which I think is is correct I also think that there's there's like a direct lobby group tied to this because it's not just broad climate change and emissions reductions there is obviously a cement and concrete industry that's tied to this and from what I could tell they're actually quite supportive of this for several reasons I can imagine like obviously typically the the companies that are able to lobby the government tend to be the bigger ones um, and so I can imagine that they see more potential for innovation in their industry, in their businesses than uh, the smaller players. And so that gives them a comparative advantage in the economy when, when it comes to that. Uh, but also like if they're also actively lobbying to have some kind of like carbon border adjustment specifically for this industry compared to other States, but also internationally, which would uh, put Californian cement and, and, and concrete producers at a huge advantage compared to producers in the rest of the world, because they have kind of a leg up and they've been able to like build up this need to have cleaner uh, techniques and all that kind of stuff. So I think they're understanding the direction that this is going regardless and that they need to get with the the times. Um, And they're probably seeing kind of the best opportunity to do this and get behind it and rally behind it than trying to buck the system.
1: And Chris, do you think this is scalable? Do you think that this would work in other states or at the federal government? I mean, at the federal government level, probably less likely, but Do you see states, particularly conservative states, maybe not taking on this exact mechanism, but some other mechanism that would encourage the built material world to go emission-free?
2: I doubt it. Um, I mean, it's a similar kind of thing over, like would they have electric vehicle mandates and whatnot? I think the answer would probably be the same, um, that, that they're unwilling to make that and there's just not the political will amongst the voters to make that happen either. So I think it would probably be a matter of supporting innovation more, especially at a federal level, investment in R&D and things like that, and then hope that that trickles down to these states where they can kind of latch onto the innovation direction without having to kind of pursue these heavy-handed mandates.
1: Mm-hmm. Chris, that's your job, right, to convince all these states that they, <laughs> that they want to do this. Uh, Holly, you
0: have something you want to add? Yeah I just think with the failure of the failure to make the net zero by 2045 into law I mean it was an executive order but you know they they just it shows what happens if you leave behind labor I mean they had opposition mm-hmm. from labor and oil industry groups but also you know they need to do more work to protect jobs and communities yeah and you know I've got to say I would love
1: to dive into labor a little bit more at some point. We don't have time today, but they're such a quandary in my head. You know, they consistently seem to oppose these environmental bills because I I understand why. Obviously, they're worried about their their workers, but on the other hand, their workers are being exposed to these things, and they should be wanting to make their industries better and and figure out ways to keep their the workers trained in these new industries. Like concrete seems like. Pretty easy to do. And and maybe that's why it passed, right? Because the same folks could work in concrete, whether it's got carbon dioxide capture or not. And so maybe that makes it an easier pill to swallow than other parts of the built material and net zero emission, you know, universe. And with that uplifting thought, (laughs) I'm going to turn it to Chris to maybe give us some good news to go out on the week, um, besides his two absolutely adorable kitties that I already mentioned early on. So Chris,
2: what's going on? Yeah, well, for, for those of you that have been loyal listeners, um, you know that I, I'm a big fan of nuclear and apparently Japan is going to start start restarting its nuclear plants because they are realizing that there's really no real path to tackling climate change without including nuclear in the mix. So they're, uh, they're going to be restarting those plants and kind of developing some new energy policies around that, which I think is really exciting
1: that's a that's kind of amazing chris how did they get over the whole fear after fukushima like what how did they how are they able to pivot like that
2: I, i i mean when they announced it they talked about having rigorous safety standards and so i presume they're just paying lip service to high security around these plans that yeah i mean maybe maybe they're just so interested in tackling climate change
0: yeah. Maybe well, it's yeah. that natural gas prices have, are through the roof right now. <laughs> That's,
2: yeah.
1: I love that Holly's the business pragmatist here and Chris is the more of the idealist. What a role reversal. <laughs> um, well, with that, I, which I actually agree Chris is great news because I, um, I have become much more of a fan of nuclear in, in my in the last few years as I've learned more I'm glad to see a country like Japan being able to bring it back online. Um, I will say goodbye to you both and thank you for your time and look forward to chatting with you again soon. This was a really fun episode. So thank you both.
0: Thanks so much for listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom.